When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That Britain, at this period, and involved in war, should not admit principles which would impeach the propriety of her conduct in seizing provisions bound to France, an enemy's property on board of neutral vessels, does not appear to me extraordinary. The articles, as they now stand, secure compensation for seizures and leave us at liberty to decide whether they were made in such cases as to be warranted by the existing law of nations. My task is done. Whether finis coronat opus, the president, senate, and public will decide. Some parts of it require elucidation to common readers. I have not time for comments. If this treaty fails, I despair of another. If satisfactory, care should be taken that public opinion be not misled respecting it. For this reason, the sooner it is ratified and published, the better. Chief Justice John Jay, writing these words on November 19, 1794, in two letters, one to Secretary of State Edmund Randolph and one to Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton, was concluding his mission to Great Britain, where he had successfully negotiated a treaty. Whether the treaty itself was a success, though, Jay knew would be up to his fellow Americans to decide when the copy he submitted, along with these letters, arrived on the other side of the Atlantic. And believe you me, Americans would have much to say about Mr. Jay's treaty. Ultimately, as in the tale of Little Red Riding Hood, the benign, friendly-looking treaty that Jay would arrive at would prove to have teeth that threatened to consume the Washington administration whole. That, dear listener is our foreshadowing moment of the day. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your humble host, Jerry Landry. Since Jay had left from New York, much had transpired in the United States over the last six months. So for this episode, we're going to head back across the pond to get caught up on a couple of notable events there before heading east to see how the American envoys to Europe were doing. And yes, I said envoys, plural. We'll get to that, I promise. Without further ado... Let's get started. The winter of 1793-1794 had been a difficult one for General Anthony Wayne and his legion. Whereas they had set out from Cincinnati anticipating a campaign, they had ended up going into winter quarters without firing a shot. Wayne's brutesque commands and heavy-handed ways had caused a rift between him and a large group of officers under his command. General James Wilkinson, Wayne's second-in-command, continued his schemes to undermine the commanding general, even going so far as to writing an anonymous and unflattering account of the recent actions of the Legion of the United States, which he had published in various newspapers in Kentucky in the early part of 1794 that he hoped would make their way to be reprinted in papers in the East. Wayne himself was described at the time as being moody and frustrated. But as the Legion marched out from Fort Greenville for the Maumee River on July 28, 1794, there was a sense of energy to the group that would soon be tested. As described by historian Hendrick Borum, quote, Midsummer warmth and the steady beat of military drums enveloped the Legion as it began its march, an hour after sunrise. The Legion's route lay northward 
into the level, boggy, brush-choked forest. Heavily loaded baggage wagons labored in the severe heat. Wayne ordered frequent halts, but the men could not really refresh themselves. All the creeks and pools in this swampy country contained muddy, undrinkable water. On the second day, before they reached Fort Recovery, several horses died. Still, Wayne, Wilkinson, and a plucky young lieutenant named William Henry Harrison, of whom we'll be hearing much more about in future series and who you can learn more about at my other podcast, The Harrison Podcast, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, as well as Wayne's force of over 2,700, marched off the beaten path and deeper into the Northwest Territory. Scouts discovered a collection of Native American towns populated by the Delaware, Miami, and Shawnee at the place where the Glaze River met the Maumee, a location that was called Grand Glaze. Wayne set his sight on it, and the force headed that way. The further they marched, though, the more suspicious they became that they were not encountering more resistance. The native peoples of the Ohio River Valley were not in a good place. The area had seen significant floods in both 1792 and 1793, with that of 1792 believed to have reached 63 feet, while the next year it went up to 57 feet. As noted back in episode 1.11, this made the situation even more tenuous for an area with already stretched resources struggling to meet the needs of both the residents of native nations that had inhabited the area for ages, as well as those who had migrated as they were forced west by white settlers. Meanwhile, the native forces were at this point much weaker than they had been in the lead-up to St. Clair's defeat. A council held at Grand Glaze not long before had found most in attendance wanting peace with the Americans, and it was only through inducement from the British that they were motivated to reject peace and prepare for war, though chiefs in attendance acknowledged that success depended on the British, and the British had proven less than reliable in the past when the native forces encountered difficulty. Meanwhile, one of the nations in the Confederacy, the Miamis, had for the most part moved west towards Vincennes in what is now southwestern Indiana and the Mississippi River, so their ranks at Grand Glaze were highly diminished. Meanwhile, the Chippewa Nation and its prestigious fighting force that had been part of the successful force of St. Clair's defeat, and that historian Leroy Eid believes may have contributed the leading architect of that attack, opted out of committing troops to face Wayne in 1794. Overall, there was a reason why Wayne's force wasn't facing a strong resistance as it marched forward. There simply was no strong resistance to be had. As Wayne's force continued on, the commander was constantly evaluating and reevaluating the situation. While frustrating at times to his subordinates, it was a trait that it seems might have earned him some respect with the native peoples, as they dubbed him the Black Snake for never being able to predict what Wayne would do next. While encamped along the St. Mary's River at the beginning of August, Wayne himself would nearly fall victim to fickle fate as a beech tree that was being cut down in order to construct a small fort that Wayne had ordered built fell on Wayne's tent while he was resting on his cot and knocked him unconscious. When he came to, Wayne discovered that, despite some bruising and pain, he was still intact, but that, if not for a tree stump preventing the tree from coming completely down, he might have ended up six feet under rather than continuing towards the Grand Glaze. Though never proven, Wayne did have time upon reflection to consider the possibility that, rather than an accident, the incident might have been an assassination attempt by some discontented soldier or officer, or perhaps someone wanting to move up in the ranks by any means necessary. 
Yes, James Wilkinson, I'm looking at you. In any event, on August 8th, the Legion, without opposition, marched through the Grand Glaze. As they reconnoitered through the native settlements, they found plenty of provisions for them to <laughs> appropriate and concluded, quote, that the enemy must have recently evacuated this place and in a great hurry and confusion. While Wayne ordered the construction of a new fort, Fort Defiance, his intelligence gathering force came through and sent word to the commander that they had located the native troops. He gathered his senior officers and explained the situation. A force of 600 native warriors was encamped at the foot of the rapids close to a fort occupied by the British, Fort Miami. Wayne proposed two strategies. They could put forward a truce offer to the natives, or they could prepare to advance the Legion ASAP and attack. Wilkinson, noting that they only had 20 days' worth of rations left, suggested that the troops be put on half rations. Though no decision was reached on that day, over the course of the next few days, Wayne would adopt all three proposals. He tried the route of negotiation first and sent a proposal for a truce on August 13th. After the completion of Fort Defiance and with no word yet from the truce offer, Wayne ordered an advance on the native encampment and put the legion on half rations on the 15th. The next day brought Wayne's messenger back from the native encampment. A counterproposal had been sent for a 10-day truce and for the legion to not advance any further. The offer was considered, then the legion kept marching. Making an encampment seven miles from the British fort, scouts were sent out to gather information, and finally, the orders were given. The legion would march at five in the morning on August 20th to attack. Due to weather, the departure was delayed for a couple of hours, but soon they were on their way. As described by Borum, quote, ahead of the legion lay a broad prairie cut by the steep-sided valleys of little creeks running into the river. Before long, they saw a group of native horsemen heading their way, and the gunfire started. The battle was on. The legion began returning fire as the left wing marched headlong into a force of native warriors and Canadian militia. Wayne, meanwhile, ordered a cavalry charge, and in the space of only 15 minutes, the legion had command of the field, and the enemy was in retreat. The native forces, just as quickly as they appeared, vanished into the forest. The British at Fort Miami, meanwhile, watched the developments and sent a messenger to Wayne asking his intentions with regards to them. Though Wayne sent a terse message back that they were illegally operating a fort in U.S. territory, which they were, he did not order the Legion to attack. The battle that he had prepared his troops for had already been fought and won, and the Battle of Fallen Timbers would prove to be a decisive battle and would set the course for the future of the Northwest Territory, though brighter prospects for white settlers would be to the detriment of the native nations in those lands. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. As tension seemed to be abating in the lands to the west, they seemed only to be heating up in Pennsylvania. As discussed in the previous episode, Washington had sent Attorney General William Bradford, Senator James Ross, and Pennsylvania Supreme Court Justice Jasper Yates to negotiate with the rebels in the western part of the state. A call had been put forward by the Mingo Creek Association for a Congress with representatives from six counties, 
five from Pennsylvania, and in an attempt to expand the revolution beyond their borders, Ohio County, Virginia, to meet on August 14th and discuss what a future relationship between their counties and the U.S. federal government would look like. The Congress would be held close to Mingo Creek at Parkinson's Ferry. As the President's commissioners moved west, they learned of the Congress and sped up their approach so that they could be on hand to speak on behalf of the federal government. They would make it in time, and on August 15th, negotiations began. Meanwhile, state governments were responding to the federal government's request to call out their militias. Maryland Governor Thomas Lee acted first on the 14th and was soon followed by New Jersey, Virginia, and, surprisingly, Pennsylvania, despite Governor Thomas Mifflin's objections to the move. With a new military force coming together, it would be all hands on deck at the War Department. Right? Right? Secretary Knox? Wait, he was just here, right? At this pivotal moment, when the Washington administration was preparing for possible military action to quell civil unrest, the Secretary of War was on his way to Maine. Treasury Secretary Hamilton had encouraged Knox, who was concerned about his affairs back home, to go ahead and proceed with his planned trip to attend his business. And Washington confirmed that his permission to depart was still granted. Who then would run the War Department and coordinate the organizing of this new force? Why, Hamilton was glad to volunteer his services. This was not the best time for Hamilton to be assuming new responsibilities, as he too was facing personal issues. His wife suffered from a difficult pregnancy in 1794 and was writing to her husband from where she was recovering in Albany of the illness of one of their sons. However, as noted by historian Ron Chernow of this moment, quote, this once more provided emphatic proof of Washington's faith in Hamilton's varied abilities and of Hamilton's perennial eagerness to exercise power. Hamilton would throw himself into the work and immediately set to the task of providing all necessary equipment, horses, and military stores for this new force. As if he had nothing else to do, he also took up his pen in an attempt to sway the public against the rebels in western Pennsylvania. Over the course of nine days, starting on August 23rd, four letters written by Hamilton using the pseudonym Tully appeared in the American Daily Advertiser outlining how the rebels intended to overthrow the people's constitutional government and asserting that, quote, there is no road to despotism more sure or more to be dreaded than that which begins at anarchy. Back west, though negotiations had just begun, Bradford was already writing directly to Washington on August 17th that the, quote, joint opinion of the commissioners was that the people cannot be induced by conciliatory offers to relinquish their opposition to the excise laws and recommending that military action sooner rather than later was advisable. Bradford then went into detail about the intelligence he had been able to gather to date about the readiness of the rebels for battle, noting that they had, quote, few bayonets here, but almost every man is well armed with a good rifle. When the letter arrived in Philadelphia on the 23rd, Washington assembled his cabinet, at least all the members who were in Philadelphia, which at this point was Randolph and Hamilton, to discuss what to do about the situation. Now, one detail should be noted here. The Presidential Commission, on the same day as Bradford's letter to Washington, had written through official channels to Secretary of State Randolph, reporting on their pessimism at their chances of success. But Bradford had then taken the extra step of writing directly to Washington. Not only did Bradford circumventing the Secretary of State prevent Randolph from toning down the message in order to continue his push for delay and a non-military resolution, 
but it also gave Washington additional intelligence from on the ground that he could use in making preparations. Meanwhile, Hugh Henry Brackenridge had written to Assistant Treasury Secretary Tench Cox on the 15th, urging that a military force not be sent and that Congress instead suspend the excise tax when it came back into session. Otherwise, Brackenridge warned that the rebels just might turn eastward and march on Philadelphia. This overture of peace, when it arrived in Philadelphia and was circulated among the highest levels of government, along with the official and unofficial reports from Bradford and the commission, had the opposite effect than intended. Rather than delaying, Washington, after his eight-hour meeting with Randolph and Hamilton, let Hamilton off his leash and gave his blessing to readying the force for immediate mobilization as well as for Hamilton to write to Virginia Governor Henry Lee, informing him that Washington had chosen Lee to serve under him as commander of this new force. As the militias began to muster, negotiations continued out west. At this point, though, Bradford was focused less on a peaceful resolution and more on dividing the rebel forces. As he had written to Washington on the 17th, quote, I have some hopes that things would yet take a favorable turn, if we could prevail on the moderate party to declare themselves openly and exert themselves with spirit in support of the laws. Both in private conversation and in the meetings with the representatives of the rebel authority, Bradford would push forward with trying to drive a wedge between the moderates and the extremists. He had an at times unwitting accomplice in undermining the rebel cause in Hugh Henry Brackenridge. Bradford and Brackenridge had been classmates at the college in New Jersey, which would come to be called Princeton University many years later. So Brackenridge provided Bradford with a good deal of background knowledge that the Attorney General would then use to the advantage of the government's position. And it worked. On August 28th, Brackenridge and the negotiating committee reported back to the rebel leaders at Brownsville, Pennsylvania, with the committee recommending that they submit to the authority of the federal government under terms negotiated with the Presidential Commission and with the Standing Committee of 60, by a vote of 34 to 23, agreeing to do so. However, given the fact that the decision had been reached by such a narrow margin, Bradford took back his commission's offer and called off the deal that had been worked out. Either everyone would agree to submit, or the federal force would march in post-haste. As noted by William Hoagland, quote, The very turmoil of the Brownsville meeting signaled that William Bradford had achieved his goals with almost perfect success. What had been a disciplined, region-wide movement against government was fatally divided. Moderates had been flushed out and exposed by the negotiations. They were vulnerable to violence, and a federal army was needed, if only to protect them. In the East, the call for military action was meeting with widespread applause. Quote, Eastern newspapers railed against the insurgency. The officer classes and city militias were gung-ho to march for victory. The opposition party could take no credible position. More than one opposition paper avidly supported sending troops. With the negotiations at an end, Bradford was able to return to Philadelphia to listen to the drums of war beating ever louder and getting ready to move. Washington, while ready to move west with the troops, agreed to take time out to sit for a portrait by William Joseph Williams that had been commissioned by his Masonic Lodge in Alexandria, Virginia. As noted by Chernow, quote, The pastel portrait that Williams executed on September 18, 1794, shows a particularly dour, cranky Washington, with a tightly turned-down mouth. His face is neither friendly nor heroic, but looks like that of a bad-tempered relative, 
suggesting that the presidency was now a trial he endured only for the public good. Still, if troops were gathering, Washington was determined to lead them as commander-in-chief. It had been decided that the right wing of the force, which was composed of militia troops from the more northerly states, would muster at Carlisle, a town in central Pennsylvania, while the left wing, forces coming from the south, would muster at Fort Cumberland in Maryland. Washington would make his way to Carlisle, then proceed forward with the right wing from there. Naturally to Washington, though it struck people then, as I imagine it does now, as odd, the president asked the Secretary of the Treasury to accompany him west. If you thought that Hamilton would sit in Philadelphia rather than witnessing firsthand the military action that he had helped in part to orchestrate, then you don't know Hamilton. On September 30th, Washington and Hamilton settled into a presidential coach outside the president's house in Philadelphia and set off towards the west to bring law and order and affirm the authority of the federal government. They had no way of knowing when they would return as evidenced by a letter written by Martha Washington to a relative that, quote, the president is to go himself tomorrow to Carlisle to meet the troops. God knows when he will return again. Never fear, Mistress Washington. Your husband shall not face quite the force that he prepared for. Though it seems that story must remain for next time, as our time together for this episode is drawn short, and we must still get back to the Chief Justice. If your head is spinning with all this, dear listener, then I must apologize. The fact of the matter is that all these seemingly isolated events, the Northwest Indian War, the Whiskey Rebellion, the Jay Negotiations, are related. I could spend an entire episode talking about the connections between these and more simultaneous events besides, but there is an overarching broad theme which can serve as a point of understanding to explain why I'm trying to cover so much in a single episode. These all reflect the newness of this government. We are at this point five years into the new government under the Constitution, and there was still so much to figure out in terms of what was the proper role of the federal government and its various officers. Furthermore, what was this nation that was being built? Arguably, these questions are still being asked and remain to be answered in our own time, 2017 as of this recording but also, perhaps, they reflect something inherent in a representative democracy, constant questioning of the fundamentals, and a self-evaluation to find what works and what can be done even better. Speaking of, one more note about the Whiskey Rebellion before we move on. The French minister to the U.S., Jean-Antoine Joseph Fauché, sent a dispatch back to Paris on September 5th that we might want to examine for a minute. I think it worthy to read this dispatch in its entirety as printed in the cited work by John J. Reardon. And I quote, Scarce was the commotion known, i.e., the latest news on the Whiskey Rebellion, when the Secretary of State came to my house. All his countenance was grief. He requested of me a private conversation. It is all over, he said to me. A civil war is about to ravage our unhappy country. Four men, by their talents, their influence, and their energy, may save it. But being debtors of English merchants... They will be deprived of their liberty if they take the smallest step. Could you lend them instantaneously funds sufficient to shelter them from English persecution? The inquiry astonished me much. It was impossible for me to make a satisfactory answer. You know my want of power and my defect of pecuniary means. I shall draw myself from the affair by some commonplace remarks and by throwing myself on the pure and unalterable principles of the Republic. I have never since heard propositions of this nature. 
If it sounds like in the midst of a domestic crisis, the Secretary of State is colluding with a foreign power to intervene in internal affairs without the knowledge and approbation of his superior, well, dear listener, that is very much how it reads. You should know that this is not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that we have primary documents that implicate Edmund Randolph in having an inappropriate relationship with the French minister. But again, that is a matter for a future episode. For now, let's turn back to the Chief Justice, who learned of Washington's intentions to nominate him as Special Envoy to Britain over a breakfast meeting in April 1794. Jay asked for time to consider, but before he could think too much on the matter, Hamilton and a group of Federalist senators paid a call on Jay that afternoon to urge him to accept the mission. For Jay, however, there was much to think about. As the government was still new, it was unclear as to whether it was actually constitutional for the Chief Justice of the Judicial Branch to accept an assignment on behalf of the Chief Executive. There was also Jay's professional future to think about. Not only was Jay being talked about as a possibility for Governor of New York the following year, but as those in the know were aware that Washington was not likely to run for a third term, Jay's name was one being murmured as a possible successor in 1796. Whatever deliberations he made on any of these are unknown to us, but Jay obviously reconciled himself to it as he accepted the position the next day. Jay's name was submitted to the Senate for confirmation, but his nomination was quickly attacked by Senator James Monroe of Virginia due to Jay's known Federalist proclivities and his work in his previous role as Secretary of Foreign Affairs in negotiating the Jay-Gardoque Treaty in 1786. Though the treaty had not been ratified, Jay had accepted a 25-year ban on American merchants using the Mississippi River for shipping, despite this being considered a serious burden on the prospects of Western settlers and limiting the possibility of future economic growth in the region. Ironically enough, Jay's decision to accept the limitation in the negotiations had been due to the expressed opinion of Monroe and others at the time that the opening of the Mississippi to American navigation, quote, would tend to divide east from west. Monroe conveniently did not mention this in his arguments in 1794, but instead asserted that Jay was, quote, not a suitable character to take up this mission to Britain. Monroe would lose this battle, as the Senate, after two days of debate, confirmed Jay's appointment as special envoy by a vote of 18 to 8. Monroe went so far after the vote as to approach French Minister Fauché to ask him to intervene as a mediator between the U.S. and Britain to resolve their issues so that Jay would not have to carry through with his diplomatic mission. Fauché, having no orders from his government to do anything of the sort, declined the request. The Chief Justice would not be the only one making his way to Europe, however. In the wake of the Genet affair and the request for Genet's recall, the French government had likewise requested the recall of the current U.S. Minister to France, Gouverneur Morris. Washington thus started to consider possible replacements. First on his list was the current U.S. Minister to Britain, Thomas Pinckney, but that was only on the condition of Jay agreeing to replace Pinckney. When approached about the possibility, Jay declined the offer to extend his mission to Britain. Both Representative James Madison and Chancellor Robert R. Livingston were approached about the mission to Paris, but both refused. However, another name was put forward as a possibility, Senator Aaron Burr of New York. Burr, upon learning of his consideration, managed to garner up some Federalist support in his favor, and it was believed by many, including Senator Monroe, that Washington would choose Burr for the post. Indeed, Monroe had been a part of a congressional committee that included Madison, 
that had met with Washington and recommended Burr for the post. Though Washington is reported to have said that he did not appoint to a high office, quote, any person in whose integrity he had not confidence, and refused to meet with the committee a third time when they called on him to discuss the matter, Monroe still felt that Burr would ultimately be appointed, as he reported to Thomas Jefferson in a letter on the morning of May 26th. Monroe saw this as Washington playing a political game with the Democratic Republicans, as he felt that Washington, quote, supposes he lays that party, i.e. the Democratic Republicans, under obligations to him for the nomination, as, in addition to other considerations, he really surmounts some objections of a personal nature in making the appointment. Imagine Monroe's surprise when, after finishing his letter to Jefferson, Secretary of State Randolph appeared at his doorstep offering him the posting to France. Monroe brought up the matter of Burr, and Randolph assured him that there was no way Washington would appoint Burr. As Monroe biographer Harry Ammon noted, Washington's objections were due to Burr's, quote, reputation as an intriguer and also as being entirely too fond of associating with ladies of easy virtue. Rather than be pushed into a decision, despite Randolph's urging for an immediate answer, Monroe instead sent a note to Representative Madison asking him to canvass congressional Democratic Republicans for their thoughts on the matter and asserting that he would abide by their decision either way. The prospect of Monroe's appointment met with overwhelming approval, so Madison sent word to Randolph to submit the appointment and the Senate quickly confirmed Monroe as the new U.S. Minister to France. Monroe's deference to the decision of the party gave him cover in avoiding any personal animosity with Burr. Byrd did get something out of the deal, however. He asked as a consolation for Monroe to take his stepson, John B. Prevost, with him to Paris to serve as his secretary, and Monroe agreed. Never let it be said that Aaron Burr wasn't always ready to make a deal, something we'll learn much more about in future series. Jay and Monroe would meet with quite different receptions upon their arrival at their respective posts. We'll talk more about the enthusiastic welcome that Monroe would receive in Paris next episode. But Chief Justice Jay and his party would receive a much more muted greeting upon their arrival in London on June 14th. Partially, this was due to the continued conflict with France and domestic agitation from radicals inspired by the French Revolution to begin demanding reforms in Britain. But the United States was still not considered a power on par with the British Empire by many in the British government, and animosities over the Revolutionary War lingered. They were received cordially in a very general sense and Jay would soon, upon his arrival, begin negotiations with British Foreign Secretary Lord Grenville. In his official instructions, while Jay was given a laundry list of desired terms from the federal government, he was also told that the president, quote, cannot undertake to prescribe rules which shall be irrevocable. You will therefore consider the ideas herein expressed as amounting to recommendations only which in your discretion you may modify as seems most beneficial to the United States, with only two quote-unquote immutable conditions noted, that the U.S. would not abandon, quote, our treaties and engagements with France, and that it would not conclude a treaty of commerce that would place the U.S., quote, under any particular restraints as to other nations, and would not grant U.S. merchants some level of entry into trade in the British West Indies. Though I will not bore you with the minute details of the back and forth of the negotiation process, suffice it to say that it was a good thing that Jay was given such wide latitude, as he had little leverage with which to bargain. 
Jay would stake out firm footing on certain issues, such as on the northwest boundary between the U.S. and Canada. The British insisted that, as the Treaty of Paris had given the British the right to navigate the Mississippi River, then the northwest boundary should be somewhere along the Mississippi River. Jay, who had worked to draft the language for this boundary in the Treaty of Paris, insisted that to not be the case, and instead talked about the Lake of the Woods being one point along the U.S.-Canadian border. If you look at a map today of North America and go to the northern border of modern-day Minnesota, you'll see moving east from Lake Superior a jagged line that goes to, you guessed it, the Lake of the Woods, where that one little bit juts up across the lake. Then, from the western shore of the lake, the line continues in a straight line westward. Jay sticking to his guns in these negotiations ensured that the final border, when it was ultimately resolved and moved westward, would give us not only northern Minnesota, but a good chunk of North Dakota, Montana, the tip of Idaho, and a good portion of Washington. On other points, though, such as compensation of American slave owners for enslaved people taken into British custody and set free during the Revolutionary War, Jay did not bother with, despite it being in the wish list in his instructions and a major issue for Southerners. The negotiations continued on through the summer and fall until finally, on November 19th, Jay and Grenville signed a treaty between the U.S. and Great Britain. While writing to Washington, Randolph, and Hamilton about the conclusion of his negotiations, Jay also wrote that day to Senator Oliver Ellsworth, Federalist from Connecticut, that, quote, The negotiation is terminated by a treaty. In my opinion, we have reason to be satisfied. It is expedient that the ratification should not be unnecessarily delayed. Concessions on the part of Great Britain cannot, in my opinion, be attained. Jay also did a bit of patting himself on the back, asserting, quote, that some of the articles in it, the treaty, will be perceived as unequivocal proofs of goodwill, and that, quote, few men would have persevered in such a dry, perplexing business with so much patience and temper as Jay had done. So what had Jay accomplished with this negotiated treaty? First, the British agreed to vacate six forts in the Great Lakes and two at Lake Champlain. The British also allowed limited rights to American merchants to trade in the British West Indies. In return, the U.S. granted Britain most favorite nation trading status. Other issues involving claims of damages related to the American Revolution and the Northeast Boundary Line between the U.S. and Canada were left to be settled respectively by arbitration and by joint boundary commissions. While doing nothing on the issue of impressment and various other points of contention, it did represent, at the very least, a step back from the brink of war between the two nations. Whether it would satisfy the American public and its leaders, however, is something that we'll have to take up next time in an episode I'd like to call Effigies and Efficacies. In the meantime, I'd like to do a shout-out to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As always, our journeys back and forth across the pond as we explore Washington's second term would not be nearly as smooth without his efforts. If you need audio assistance with your podcast or audio project, drop him a line via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, feel free to send me your questions, thoughts, or your I went to Mingo Creek and all I got was this lousy t-shirt pictures to Presidency's Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I can also be reached via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies and via Twitter at presidencies89. 
Source information for this episode, as well as options on how to subscribe to this podcast, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. I thank you so very much for listening. And take care, dear friends. Until next time. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.